build some mountain climbing uh, equipment to get up here, but uh, we decided not to put that in the budget. But if you would, that was a joke, Bill, by the way. I'm just messing with you, brother. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 23, but I'm only going to read verses 1 through 3. So if you want to stand for the reading of God's word, if you can, and I will read Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, and then we'll have prayer. Here we go. But it so happened when Samballot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they receive stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside himself. And he said, whatever they build, if a fox goes upon it, he will break it down. He will break down their stone wall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we thank you so much for a place to come and worship you as the one and only true God to, to sing songs of praise, songs of declaration of your great and deep and vast and effective love to us. Father, we thank you that we were able to, to give to your work tonight and today. So Father, just meet us tonight, not that you're not here, but meet us in a special way individually, that the Spirit of God will renew our minds, refresh our spirits, and may the Word of God go forth and accomplish your will. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. You may be seated. I've entitled this message, Nehemiah. Nehemiah organizes the people. Now, when I first took the little church there at Midway Baptist, but halfway between Claremore and Pryor, off of Highway 20, I'd only been there about a month just filling in the pulpit. They'd had a pastor for about eight years. And during those eight years, uh, from what they tell me, after I accepted to be their bivocational pastor, um, pretty much while well, Sunday morning, Sunday night, was spent just studying the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and bashing them. And then Wednesday night was all about, I don't know, who knows what. He, I think he studied one word, imputation, for about 10 months. But he was just uh, different, okay? But nothing was in order there. Everything that had to be done, he had to be in control of. And they were telling me little things like that during that one month that I was just filling in Sunday morning. Then me and Larry would go to Bella Rose and do our Sunday night service. And I'd come back Wednesday to maybe do some kind of doctrinal study through the Baptist faith and message or, or like we've been doing questions and answers and things like that. And during that month, they told me that. So I began to pray about if they asked me to be their pastor, what am I going to be doing? Well, all I could think of was Paul when he wrote to Titus. He said, Titus, I'm putting you in the churches of Crete to put into order the things that need to be done. And that place needed order in the sense of they didn't know what they were supposed to do because they were always told what they were supposed to do. And if they didn't do it, they were always lamb blasted. So the first thing we did in that little church 
as we had a business meeting. And, and I moderated, and they were just, they're just sitting there all fearful because I guess their last business meetings was, let's just say Gail wanted to make a motion. And she makes a simple motion that they're going to discuss and, and vote on the next month. Well, the pastor then would say, okay, so what you really mean, and he would reword her motion that meant the same thing, but it had to be worded in, to the clerk by how he said it had to be done. He was just very, I think he was just afraid. Maybe he was in a situation where things did get out of control, so he had to be in control. So the first time I was there, uh, Geraldine, one of our older members that was there, she's about 78, another lady, what, she was close to 90, wasn't she? Little, uh, um, what was her name, Mama? Yeah, Joanne. They were our oldest members. And little Geraldine raised up her hand. She had Parkinson's. I said, yes, Geraldine. She goes, may I make a motion, Pastor? I said, well, yeah. Yeah, the floor's open. I told you the floor's open for motions. But she was all scared. They were all intimidated. So I let them, first of all, be comfortable in a business meeting to be able to discuss things, let alone vote on it, and bring some order to it. And then I had to, uh, uh, they had a set of bylaws that was about, believe it or not, it was 20 pages long. Oh, they had a, uh, an amendment for every contingency that had ever happened. And they were confused because some of the contingencies were like, it had nothing to do with order, defining things, what a committee is, what a pastor is. So I created a little two-page bylaws for them, and they approved it that just defines what a pastor is, what a member is, what a business meeting looks like, you know, things of that nature, and whatever committees they had. It was a small church. But I just began to put some things in order. And then, then when I was there for about a month and did all that, as far as just the, the organization part of it, there was a young man that would bring his grandma and the other old lady to church every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night. He would, he would drive them and bring them. And um, he had special needs, and he wanted to do a lot of things. Oh, he wanted to do a lot of things. I knew he wasn't capable of doing but how do you tell somebody you're not capable so I sat back and think, you know, this guy wants to get busy. Well, I began to watch him. And this is what he'd do. Let's say David comes in here and sits down. He would be over there handing you a visitor's card without anybody ever telling him to. Or she starts coughing and say, do you need a cough drop? He'd get you water. He might make you a coffee during Sunday school. I began to realize he was doing stuff like that already. So I went up to him after I talked to his grandma. And I said, Granny, I said, do you think he would like to be the church host? I see he's always handing people visitor's cards. He's getting them water if they need water. He shows them where rooms are. She goes, I think Danny would like that. And that was the only thing I really set in order for any kind of leadership. Danny thrived off that, didn't he, Karen? If you came in, you got a pin from the church. You, if you were new, if you were old members coming, well, then he'd do stuff for you. And, and that's basically what God has asked the pastor to do, to come in there and bring some kind of semblance of order. Not necessarily to change things around. You know, we need to move this over here, over there. It's to bring things in order. And when I came here, and I've told you several times, you're a very functional body. You may not think you are. You may think, no, nah, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that have to change, or they got to shift and everything. We'll get there. They can't help it overnight. But listen, I've pastored several churches. You are functioning fine. You are organized. And you're united in that organization. And what we're going to see here, in the, or what we've already seen in the text, is some, some resistance there in verse 1 through 3. They've already, in chapter 3, when I slaughtered all those names, they were already busy. They said, let's put our hands to work. And they just began to get busy, didn't they? 
But what they didn't know is resistance was working on them. Resistance was coming their way. And in the midst of that resistance, just blood, sweat, and tears, sweat equity wasn't going to get them to the finish line. It would only bring them so far because when resistance comes, the enemy begins to work on your mind, right? And the enemy begins to work in groups and cause discord. And we're going to see here that as the enemy progresses or the criticism progresses its approach against what God wants God's people to do, the people had to get a little bit more organized. Nothing crazy, nothing legalistic, but they had to be organized so they weren't distracted by what they were hearing and by what they were assuming. Because we'll see in the text that some of them do get fearful after what's being said here in verse 1 through 3. They get fearful. But you'll also notice here in a little bit, after the first three verses of all these uh, belittling statements, are they going to make sacrifices, are they going to rebuild it? The first thing Nehemiah does when he hears it is he prays. He prays to God for direction. He prays for God for, for strength because he knows now this is a serious thing. That not only what they're doing, but the resistance is against them. So what they must be doing must be right, and it's very serious. And anytime you and I want to do the right thing, individually, collectively, or even as a family, there's always going to be some semblance of resistance. And as I told you, my little Joy likes to work out on weights, and the more he resists with them weights, the bigger his muscles get. The smaller mine get because I don't resist. But this organization of the people was not so much for business purposes, but it was for uniting one another. So as we're organized and as we shift maybe organization, shift responsibilities in time, it'll be for the purpose of creating unity so people aren't overworked, so people aren't overtaxed, but at the same time, everybody has a role. Somebody has a place to stand. So the first thing I want to talk about in verse 1 through 3, as Nehemiah organizes the people, the organization for defeatism. They organized to push against defeatism. Look at verse 1 through 3 again, this defeatism that Sam Ballot and Tobiah and all these critics have. The organization for de defeatism. In other words, they're going to organize so they're not defeated. Verse 1 through 3. But so it happened when Sam Ballot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify, will they, will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside himself, and he said, this was his, this was his naysaying, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes upon it, it will break down their stone wall. All these words that Samballot, Tobiah, the Sumerians, all these words that they were saying were there to promote defeat, promote pessimism, promote a culture 
They're trying to create a culture so that God's people who have already gotten busy in chapter 3 and been very successful and they're being busy, they don't want them to, to finish. They don't want them to complete. The whole idea of what they're saying is for defeatism. Well, a good work, as I said before, a good work will be resisted. A good work will be criticized. Sometimes you do a good work and it's just not good enough. There's not enough done. It's always going to be criticized. It's always going to have resistance. A good work will be intimidating sometimes because as you're doing the good work and people say things like this, you get intimidated. And I learned a long time ago as a minister that you better have the, the skin of a rhino and the heart of a lamb because everybody uh, knows how to preach a sermon better than me. At least I found out the last church I was at, there was a guy that visited named Frank. He came real faithful. And he opened up, his, opened up his Bible and would listen to everything I was having to say and where we were at. But at the end of every sermon, because I was the guy that also locked the door, he wanted to walk out the door with me. And as we're walking out the door, well, Pastor, if you'd have preached this way, well, Pastor, if you'd have said that. And after a while, I was like, man, I was like, so I said, Frank, I said, have you ever preached a sermon? He goes, no. Nope. I said, well, when you get your church and preach your first sermon, you come and tell me how to preach a sermon. And he kind of looked back at me. Well, he'd been doing some professorship at RSU on uh, uh, geology or something like that, chemistry. He had a chemistry degree. He was just kind of an adjunct professor. I said, what you don't realize, I said, here I am. I've been working three or four hours on a sermon. I said, then I pour out my heart for an hour. And then as we're leaving the church at the heat of the moment, you're trying to tell me how I should have preached better. I said, what if I was a student in your chemistry class and it took you three hours to create that syllabus to teach us in our class today? Then after class as a student, I went up to you and said, well, professor, I enjoyed this, I enjoyed that. But if you want to be a better professor, you could have done it this way and that way. I said, how would that make you feel? He said, pretty bad. I said, well, that's how you make me feel right now. I said, now, if you want to talk to me later on about the sermon, some details, that's all fine. I said, but don't critique my preaching until you've preached a sermon. And so you might say, well, that's not, <laughs> that's not very thick-skinned. Well, it went on for about three months before I ever approached him on that. I just told him, I said, look, you know, when you get your church. Because he told me, he even told me this one time. I think God's called me to preach. I said, well, I said, I want you to read First and Second Timothy and Titus for the next month, at least once every day. And then come back and talk to me about that. Well, why is that? I said, those are the pastoral epistles. It's going to talk about your qualifications. It's going to talk about some things you're going to do, how you're going to deal with the people, how you're going to feed the flock. It deals with a lot of things. He said, well, do you do that? I said, I read First and Second Timothy every week to remind myself how I'm to conduct myself in the house of God. I said, First Timothy chapter 4. Kind of looked at me. Well, you know, there's always a critic in the crowd. And the critic is not so much, doesn't want you to stop doing something. It's just not good enough. There's always resistance, but it's always intimidating doing a good work. Sometimes as a pastor, it can be intimidating. I'm going to tell you why. Because I'm a person, right? I'm a human being, and I want to make you happy. I want you to be happy with me, so everybody likes to be liked, right? Everybody likes to be liked. So it can be intimidating. You may not think I'm intimidated up here, but I'm intimidated. You know why? You pay my salary. That's intimidating, Right? I mean, you think about it, in, in a very practical sense, that's intimidating. I'm not saying you're intimidating people. I'm not saying anybody out there has intimidated me. 
like on purpose or anything. I'm just letting you know that I know what I do is very important and, and therefore it affects you how I do it and why I do it. But sometimes a good work is intimidating. A good work, a good work will, will be exposed usually by a bad word. In other words, if you're doing the right thing, you can usually know you're doing the right thing because someone's going to have some critique or resistance to it. Now, I'm not saying that works every time because I could be doing something totally wrong or totally unbiblical and you'd criticize me, right? You'd come to me and confront me. But in general, when you're doing the right thing and bad words come to you to critique that, it tells you you're probably on the right track. Because listen, we're doing something here tonight that glorifies God, right? And there's one person who is walking to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. There's one person in this world, in this world system, that is the accuser of the brethren. There's a person in this world that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And my point is, is if we're doing what we think is right at the time, as right as we can get it, we're a target. Because there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a being called Satan that would love to just destroy this church or the church down the street or the church around the corner. He would love to do that. You know why? Because he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. He's seeking whom he may devour. And when you and I are doing a good work, there's always going to be resistance. There's always going to be critiquing. And it can be intimidating even as a member, right? It can be intimidating because you want it to work. You don't want anything to fail. Anytime we do a good work, it will be, it, usually that good work will be exposed by the fact that you're getting a bad word over here. Not a, not a correcting word, but a bad word. It's just naysaying, shadow casting. So the, organiz, the organization was for, to defeat defeatism in verse 1 through 3. There was a lot of defeatism in Sam Ballot and Tobiah's words. They were seeking to intimidate, resist, and critique. Are they going to do sacrifices again? Are they going to build that wall? Those were questions of doubt, casting doubt on what God's people was doing. I really believe that the reason they use those words, and usually it's been my experience when someone uses those kind of words of doubt, it's because... They may, not be believe, they may not believe in what you're doing, and, and Nehemiah's already pointed that out to me. He says, you're, you have no part of this, so just you know, butt out. We're going to put our hands to the work. But when someone casts shadows of doubt, it's usually because God is doing something, not you, not necessarily me, but he's using us to do something, and for whatever reason, either that person feels left out, Maybe they're jealous because maybe they haven't accomplished something. I don't know. There's a lot. Of, there's an array of reasons why they're, they're critical. But I do know this, that Satan can use anybody in the church, out of the church. Laws, we'll see that. So in verse 1 through 5, the organization is for defeatism. They're organizing because of the defeatism. Verse 4 through 6, the organization is for dependence. They're going to get organized to express dependence. Look at verse 4 through 6. I'm sorry, 4 through 6. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. So that tells me that Nehemiah knows what's being said. 
He knows they're being despised. And what he does is he organizes to show the people what dependence looks like. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads. In other words, you just let them stumble on their own words, stumble on their own saying, and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. As they organized because of the defeatism, as they organized through prayer to show dependence on God, that dependence, the, the dependent work, leaves the resistance in God's hands. Because you said, God, they're resisting us. You take care of that. So that, that idea of organizing independence, it, it left the resistance to God and that dependent work of prayer pursued the work for God's glory. So after they prayed that prayer, dependent, d- d- despite of the defeated, defeating talk, they built the whole wall up to half its height. They got it halfway done, the wall. Because they were willing to organize with the idea of dependence on God. God, you're going to take care of the resistance. You're going to take care of the intimidation. We're just going to be busy at the Lord's work. And they were successful. That dependent organization of work pursued God's glory and lead the resistance to God's hand. A dependent work will work if it is God's work. I know that's just a bunch of, sounds like, oh, what's his name, the baseball player. You know, it is what it is. Uh, game ain't over till it's over. But, you know, you think about it. A dependent work where we're dependent on God, it will always work if it's God's work. And we know Nehemiah is doing God's work because God put it on Nehemiah's heart many moons ago when he was a cupbearer to do this and then God moved in a pagan king's heart to fund it all and God, the pagan king, brought him there and they started working and it's working. So God's work will always work if it's God's work. I know that's a lot of redundancy, but you think about it. If it's God's work, it's going to work. If we're doing what God has asked us to do the best we can with the understanding that we have, it's going to work. So they organized to be dependent. They organized to defeat the defeatism. And then in uh, uh, verse 7 through 9, they organized for defense. They organized for defense. Look at verse 7 through 9 with me. Now it happened... When Samballot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps or the breaks were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. You see the, you see the enemy just escalating its anger, its resistance. Verse 8, and all of them conspired together. They begin to unite. They begin to organize. Just conspire together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. 
Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. They were organizing for defense. Now, one of the things I've learned playing basketball over the years, mostly sitting on the bench, but I played basketball, playing soccer, is that uh, the best offense, and we'll talk about this later on, but the best offense is a great defense. And what I mean by that is when I, when I played men's soccer, we didn't win too many games the first couple of years I played men's soccer because we were just a bunch of ex-jocks that knew nothing about soccer. We were playing guys that came from Eastern Europe and they worked at American Airlines, Iceland, places like that. They knew how to play soccer. So I was kind of the assistant coach and I said, look, I said, our defense is going to have to shut them down. Well, in soccer, at the midline, if your defense stands on the midline, that other offensive player can't get behind me to after the ball's passed. Otherwise, it's offsides. So we played a tight defense at that midnight. Now, sometimes I had to run back and get the ball. But you know what? If you can't get past me to bring the ball down to shoot, guess what? You ain't going to score. So I taught my friends that we're going to have to have a tough defense. if we're gonna. And then I told them also, you know, on average, we take three shots at the goal down there on the other end. A game. That's an hour and a half. 45 minutes and a half. Taking three shots at the goal. You're not going to win a soccer game. I said, we're going to have to up how many times we shoot. We're going to have to shoot at that goal 20 times just to make three goals. So we had to have a great defense to have a good offense. Because once the defense shut them down, then we could kick the ball up where they could just pound that goal and pound that goal. And we begin to have winning seasons. Well, you know what? These people put together a defense of watching day and night, being alert. The resistance rose, and when the resistance rose, it brought confusion to the ranks of God's people. But when the resistance fell, it fell because there was a clear dependence that we're going to rely on each other, and we're going to pray to God to, to protect us. It says when they found out that there was a conspiracy, the first thing they did before they ever set watch is they prayed. And I believe in that prayer that they prayed, God led them to say, you've got to have watches day and night. You've got to have a watch day and night. You've got to have a good defense if you're going to have an offense. And so in that verse 7 through 9, they were organizing their defense. Uh, anytime a, a resistance rises... Anytime a resistance rises, it, it raises and heightens our devotion to be, become more dependent on God. You ever notice when everything's kind of going your way or going my way, we're probably a little bit less dependent on God because everything's going our way. But yet when things get real tough, you get down on your knees. You begin to pray. You begin to cry out to God. You begin to discuss more things with your wife when things are tough because you know, you're in this together, right? And so, in this case, when the resistance kind of upped it to a conspiracy, they continued to pray, and then they set watch. They set a watch day and night. They built a wall, a defense. And all it was was just eyeballs. That's all it was was eyeballs. Make a watch. They haven't even escalated their defense yet. The first thing they're just, just make a watch. And that watch was built off prayer. 
the watch night, the watch day. Then in verse 10 through 14, there was not only the organization for defeatism, to defeat defeatism, to uh, organization for dependence and organization for defense, but they were organizing because of the discord. Look at verse 10 through 14, the discord. Then Judah, then Judah said, the strength of the labors is failing. He's kind of losing heart, isn't he? And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they will neither we will that they will neither know nor see anything till we come into the midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was, so it was when the Jews were who dwelt there them came, near them came, that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, I mean, these enemies are telling all the, wherever you turn, I'll be there. They're intimidating them, right? That was their conspiracy. And they said, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, this is what Nehemiah did, therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families. Do you start to see some organization here? Some physical organization? They're not just praying and setting up a watch. As I set them up in their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren brethren of your sons your daughters your wives and your houses they were organizing organizing because of the discord judah had heard about this conspiracy nehemiah had already prayed about it set up a watch now maybe these guys that were watching were getting whispers from the enemy we're coming after you you're not going to do it. Who do you think you are? Whispering. And Judah heard that whispering. And he says, guys, we're getting tired. But we're getting tired not only because of just the work, but we're, we're, we're scared. We're getting intimidated. There was, and, they, and some of the people began to believe what he was saying. And the Bible says what Nehemiah did is he spoke to them and reminded them that it wasn't their work, it was the Lord's work, and that the Lord had called them to accomplish it. And then on top of that, for their own personal encouragement, he says, some of you are going to have bows and spears and, and swords. And then he gave them that battle crisis because, listen, if you do have to fight, fight for your brother, fight for your sister, fight for your wife, fight for your mother. This is serious stuff. This is uh, one, thing we, one thing I've learned in, in ministry, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but ministry is a blood sport. It's not for cowards. It's not for somebody to think they're going to be important standing behind this public because, listen, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be naysaying. There's going to be critiques. They organized because of the discord. The enemy influenced the weak, and they influenced the distracted. Judah was apparently one of the weak and one of the distracted, and they influenced him to think, you ain't going to do it. 
you're going to fail. You're going to fail in strength. It ain't going to happen. The enemy not only influences, influences the weak and the distracted, but the enemy misjudges the devoted and the divine. Because in the midst of that intimidation, distraction, no, Nehemiah put him back on track. This is the Lord's work. And the Lord said he's going to help us build this. So the enemy not only influences the weak and the distracted, but the enemy misjudges the devoted and the divine. A weak and distracted people need a divine message. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But happy is he who keeps the law. The Bible talks about the body of Christ being a body, right? And Christ is the head. And how the body of Christ is a, a mixture of all kinds of members. But I'm going to tell you something personal about your pastor that maybe you know, maybe you don't know. I look relatively healthy up here at age 61, going on 62. If I had to start mowing tomorrow, I could either grab my self-propelled mower, I could, pro I could grab my uh, me-propelled mower, and I could mow three-quarters of an acre. That's what I do every spring, every summer. I push mow three-quarters of acres. So you would say, well, that's pretty healthy. But listen, my body is only as strong as its weakest body member. What do you mean, Brother Steve? Well, I could mow the yard if I had to. I could mow the church if I had to to help David. But you know what the weakest member of my body is? My pancreas. I have to have 14 units twice a day. Otherwise, my pancreas doesn't know what to do, and it starts eating my body, and I get ketoacidosis, and I really lose weight, and eventually I go to ketoacidosis, and I die. So that's the weakest member in my body. So I've got to make sure I'm giving it liquid gold twice a day, make sure that pancreas is happy. Otherwise, I look relatively healthy. Well, you know what? It's the same thing in the body of Christ. A weak or distracted member of the body needs a divine message to encourage them. That's why when the Bible does talk about us being the body of Christ, it not only says you rejoice when other parts of the body have some kind of success, but you respond with compassion when they're hurting. You know why? Because that part of the member of the body needs our attention at that time. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to be full-time, not bivocational, because if I'm out there driving hospice, I can't come and care for you. I wanted to be full-time so I could focus on one thing, and that's taking care of the body the best I can as it's communicated. Because like I told you, I don't have mind-reading pills, so, so if you have a stumped toe and I don't know about it, it's because you didn't tell me, but I need to know about it. But listen, the organization was to defeat discord. And discord was coming through the weak and the distracted that was being influenced by the resistance. But the enemy misjudged the devoted and the divine, those that were strong, like Nehemiah, who stood up and said, Judah, this is the Lord's work. We're going to get this done. Let's rally together. Let's get weapons. Let's get this. Let's get that. Get organized. So they, so they started with the defense of night and day. Now they're picking up the offense, you see? Which leads us to our next point in verse 15 through 18. The organization was for diligence. Apparently, Judah said, some of us are failing in strength. Some of us are failing in, in vision to get this done. Look at the organization for diligence. Verse 15 
through 18, how they build diligence. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, in other words, we knew their conspiracy, we figured it out, and this is how we're going to solve the problem. When the enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work, so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. It was, they were supporting it. They were, they were leading them. They were helping them. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that one hand, with one hand they worked at construction, the other hand held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. They had already set up a defense of night watch and day watch. As a conspiracy, as the resistance progressed, then they set up guard. They even had an alarm with the trumpet. They, uh, Nehemiah knew that people like Judah might feel like they need, they're going to fail. They're failing strength, failing encouragement. Well, he organized them to build diligence, to bid, build diligence. The work was divided in offense and defense. And the work was effective to build and protect. So he, originally they just began to build, right? They were just building. They were just building and building. We saw that in chapter 3. They just continued to build. They were probably having fun. This is great. Let me take your wall and I'll get your wall and I'll meet you up. But all of a sudden, intimidation came and they had to kind of change the way they worked. They had to have a day watch and a night watch. And then they had to work in such a way that it involved offense, building the wall, and defense, ready to protect the wall. They had to build in such a way that was effective that they could build but it was also effective that they could protect the people. The best offense, as I said, is a great defense. So what was the first thing they did in, in their line of defense? They began to pray. And as they prayed, they prayed for the day watch and the night watch. And I know that you're a praying people, and we need to continue to pray day and night. The day watch and the, and the night watch as we pray and we depend on God to help us accomplish what he's asked us to do as Calvary Baptist. Now you say, well, Brother Steve, does that mean I need to wear a bow and a sword? No. But there's offensive skills you have. It's called, it's called the sword of the Lord, right? right? And so there's one seeking to devour whom he may. There's one seeking to accuse the brethren. And we're going to have to be diligent. And part of that diligence is, is having a good, the best offense is a good defense. Then in verse 19 through 23, the organization was for development, to develop what they've kind of changed, developed how they're doing things. Now they're building and protecting, right? Now they're, now they're doing offense and defense. Well, how do we continue the development? Well, look how they organize for development. Look at verse 19 through 23. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work 
And half of the men held the spears by daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem. They would stay here, that they may be our guard by night and working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of, of the guard who followed me took off their clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. And by the way, if you've ever heard your pastor call it washing, I do. I call it washing a lot. Now, this is washing because it's just like Jesus washed us from our sins. But they organized to develop the work, to develop the idea of offense and defense. They needed to be diligent, and they needed to develop this culture. What culture? A culture of unity. And he said, one of the ways we're going to create a culture of unity in this situation is we've, we've already divided offense and defense, building but also protection, but how we're going to do it so you're not so far off and having to travel back and forth, we're all going to stay right here. And when you're done working during the day, then you're going to guard by night. You're going to be a watch by night. And they were so sacrificial, they said, you know what, and we're not going to wash, we're not going to wash any clothes until we need to, we're not going to take off any clothes until we wash them. No, that's the only time we take off our clothes. We're ready for offense. We're ready for defense. We're ready. No matter what. We only take time. Well, listen. What he was trying to develop was unity. Unity amongst the people. They were failing in their encouragement. They felt like they were going to fail in their task. And he, he changed the strategy a little bit. He organized a little bit so they would be diligent. So they would be dependent. They would know they had defense. And so that they could develop unity. Unity has a call to bring us together for success. We have not united here tonight for defeat, have we? We've united here tonight to be successful, to sing praises to God, to pray to God, to give to the Lord's work, and to come to his word and say, Lord, instruct us. And guess what? We're successful in that. Because we're united in that one thing. We know that when we come together here in the worship service, we have come to worship God. We have come to get instruction from God. We have come to tell him how great he is. We have come to say, God, we depend on you and you alone. Unity has a call to bring us together for success. But also, like these men, unity has a cost. Has a cost to bring us together for success. Because Jesus said, you want to follow me? Then pick up your cross and follow me. You want to follow me, disciples? Then deny yourself and follow me. There's a cost to this unity. There's a cost to the success that Calvary Baptist has had even before I got here. Because you were willing to take that cost, wherever that cost was. And you were willing to hear that call to be united so that God's message would go not only outside of these, inside these walls, but outside of these walls to a lost and dying world. Unity must not only be attractive, it needs to be attractive, but unity must be productive, right? If all we said was kumbaya and held hands and we were united and we never grew spiritually, we never grew numerically, it's not productive, then probably we need to change some of this organization that we're doing, right? Maybe we need to change something. Well, these people knew about unity. 
their unity was not only attractive, not only did Nehemiah, Nehemiah make the idea of unity attractive, that you're with me and I'm with you and, and he's with him and we're fighting for one another. He not only made it attractive, but they saw the fruits of their labor. They saw some fruits of their labor. Half their wall was already built. They were being productive in that unity. That told them that Nehemiah was leading them the right direction because they were being productive. There was some kind of fruit from all that kumbaya unity and rah-rah speech of offense and defense and building protecting. The organization was for development. Nehemiah organizes the people to accomplish God's work. And that godly organization led to the defeat of the resistance. They were organizing to accomplish God's work. And as they organized in God's work, that you had this responsibility, I had this, and you had that, and they locked arms together by organizing that way in unity, saying this is for God's glory. By them doing that, God took care of the resistance. That's what we're going to see. If we were to just do a synopsis over the book of Nehemiah, there were seven times that Samballot and Tobiah and his friends approached and, and pretty much, well, scoffed at God's people. Why is it seven times? Well, that's the number of perfection, right? Now, I know in the story it was just seven times, but I think what it's saying here is when you're busy doing God's work and no matter how complete the resistance may be seven times, it's still going to be accomplished. Because, listen, when God wants to do something, nobody can thwart it. Nobody can change that direction. Nobody can undo it. If God has decreed and providentially moved to accomplish something, it's going to be accomplished. Had a patient, and I've told you about this before, probably on Wednesday nights, had a patient that was in his 90s, real tall, thin black man. I can't remember what his disease was, probably something like heart failure. But the last time I went to see him, before he passed away, he said it this way. He said, preacher? I said, yeah. He goes, there's one thing God can't do. I said, really? There's, nothing, there's something God can't do? He said, yep. God can't fail. He said, that'll preach, brother. And what he means is, is if God has said he's going to do something, he's going to accomplish it because God will not and cannot fail if he says he's going to do something. That's why we've got to depend on him. That's why when things, resistance does come or a long shadow or doubtful things come, we go to our knees. We hold hands in prayer. God, this is what's happening. We're, not, we're a little scared. God, we, we might even not even think we got the strength, but God, we need your help. And God, you're going to have to take care of them because we know we've got to take care of that. And we've got to separate this from that. And God, so help me to focus on what I've got to do. Help me to be prepared for whatever I've got to do. Help me to be prepared for whatever the cost is. Help me to hear that unity call and lock arms with my brothers and my sisters and fight for them if I have to, but help me to be busy about the Lord's work, knowing that you're going to take care of the resistance. He organized the people to accomplish God's work, and in that godly organization, it led to the defeat of the resistance. What does this mean to a believer? Well, as we seek to build or we seek to shore up here in Calvary's walls, the resistance will come from the outside. The resistance will come perhaps from the 
inside, the weakness will come from the inside. The outside circumstances could be everything from economic uh, forces. It could be political forces. It could be cultural forces. That's where some of the resistance will come from the outside. And those economic, political, and cultural things could affect our monies. It could affect our rights. It could affect our unity concerning our safety in the culture we live in today. The inside weaknesses could be a lack of confidence, a lack of participation. It could be a lack of keeping things in court and there's discord. And that would affect our momentum. That would affect some of our progress. And it would definitely affect our unity. So there's some things, circumstances with the outside and some weaknesses with inside that could affect our rebuilding, our building, our shoring up, our keeping things straight. So what do we do as the believers? Well, may we lift our circumstances and may we lift any of our weaknesses to God. To God who will deal with these things. And may we in our dependent prayer pursue our divine call to do God's work, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when we're here, we're here to equip the saints to do the ministry. And, and therefore, we, we, we unite through, through helping one another hand in hand, trusting God in unity that what he's began here as a church, he's going to finish. And so... That's what we learn as believers. That's what they did. They organized, and in that organization came unity, came awareness, came dependence, came diligence, came developing a, very, a much deeper vision on how we're going to do things. And that's how it's going to work here. I know there's some things that might need to change or things we've got to tweak, and, and, and part of that is, I will tell you this, as your pastor, as I told you before, I work with what I got. In other words, how you do things is okay with me, unless it's unbiblical or it just brings chaos. So one thing you'll find out about your pastor is I'm not going to change a lot of things unless I think it just would bring order, more order or more clarity, clarity to something. Otherwise, I walked into your house, and I'm a guest in your house until I become part of the family mentality. When I was a hospice chaplain and I walked in that house, I wasn't thumping them over the head with that Bible because you know what? I was in their house. Now, I may have walked in with the Bible, and until they invited a few things, we didn't even talk about God. I just wanted to know where they were from. How did they get here? How does your disease make you feel? I'm going to do the same thing with you. Where are you from? How are you feeling? What do you see here that needs to change? And through those conversations, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And anything that needs to change, just like here, it didn't change overnight, did it? By the time they got, it took them to chapter 4 to really get organized. Otherwise, they were just putting their hands to the work. And I know you've been doing that. And we're going to get organized. We're going to get better organized. We're going to develop those things. We're going to fine-tune things. And it takes time because the church is not built overnight. But we're going to pray about those circumstances that are on the outside, weaknesses that are on the inside, and we're going to pursue the unity of the body of Christ for the glory of God. What does this mean to a lost person? Well, a lost person 
must see that by nature they are an enemy of God, the Bible says. They, they resist God. That's why God says, I give grace to the humble and I resist the proud. And as a lost person, they're proud. That's why, well, how am I proud? Well, you're not doing things God's way. You're not coming to Jesus for salvation. You're trying to get on your own maybe self-righteous, or you're trying to get there because someone feels sorry for you. But you know what? As a lost person, by nature, you are an enemy of God who has broken the laws of God. You have transgressed the laws of God. They said, no, I haven't. Well, then you just told a lie, and you just broke a transgression. You just transgressed one of God's laws, right? Because all of us have sinned, and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. However, that lost person needs to understand that, that in their resistance and them being an enemy of God, not all is lost. Because God even made a plan for that, that while they were still yet sinning, Christ died for the ungodly. God will resist them as long as they resist him, but if they will surrender to his way, they can find peace with God and be reconciled to God. They need to know, and I know you know this, but they need to know that Jesus came not to condemn the sinner, but he came to save the sinner. He came to seek and save them because they're, they're condemned already. And in their condemnation, they're lost in the bondage that says they're going to hide from God. They're going to hide from God. They don't want to come to God by nature. They're lost in that bondage. And until God stirs their heart and draws them effectively by his, by his call and draws them unto himself, they're going to remain lost. So we implore that lost person. We implore that non-believer, come to Jesus and Jesus alone. Come to him and be set free from the bondage and guilt of sin. Come to him and be set free to have eternal joy, eternal peace, and eternal righteousness. A lost person, like a saved person, God made us all by his wonderful grace. He even lets us exist. And, and even when I was lost, I had purposes. I had a purpose as a son. I had a purpose as a steel fabricator. I had, I had a purpose of living in general. But only until God opened my eyes did I realize there was a purpose a little bit bigger than what's just at the end of Steve's nose. There's something grander out there. There's something uh, eternal out there. And listen, a lost person may have a lot of purpose, but until they come to Jesus, they don't know what purpose is. To know that God has saved you he called you out of darkness into light to be a servant. How, whatever that role is, to serve him in this world. That is a great purpose. We was talking about that. I mean, Jay, we're talking about that. You know, we, we once were slaves to sin. And when he saved us, he made us a slave to righteousness. And I'm okay with using that word slave. Because listen, he is my master. I don't mind calling him master, no matter what the American history of master and slave is, because that master is perfect. He's not prejudiced. He's not, he's, not, uh, he's not tainted. He's a good master. His yoke is easy. His burden's light. And so a lost person needs to realize they are a slave to sin until God changes their heart and makes them a slave to do what is right. So we would commend that lost person today Come to God by crying out to Jesus and say, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. It's that simple. Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Receive eternal purpose. Receive 
eternal life is what we would say to a lost person. I'm going to ask Bill and the ladies to come up and play a song of invitation. No sawdust trail up here. I'm pretty simple in my invitation. But if you're here tonight and you're a believer, <clears throat> we have to make up our minds. It gets scary when you hire a new pastor, right? Because you don't know enough about me to say, oh, I know everything. It's scary on your part too. But you know what? We can work together. We can lock arms together. We can pray together. We can get to know each other, build some walls of defense, weapons of our warfare, and begin to work together and watch God build things, rebuild, shore up, build things, build relationships, build a mission-mindedness outside of these four walls. We come together here for you to be equipped, for me to dispense the Word of God in such a way that it encourages you and instructs you. It gives you good, healthy doctrine to help you grow in your faith. And then we lead these four walls to go out into the mission field and use them however God gives us opportunity. It may be for evangelism. It may be for benevolence. It may be for a mixture of everything, but it's always for the glory of God. If you're, if you're here tonight and you're lost or you're listening by, uh, by the video or, or the audio and you're lost, we want you to know Jesus is the only way. You must cry out to him to be saved. Otherwise, there is no hope. There is no purpose. There is no unity in anything other than the fact that you, you, have, you have solidified your eternal future without God. And what you need is hope. What you need is peace. What you need is joy that can't be taken away. And Nehemiah and his people had that. Sometimes they had to remind each other. Nehemiah constantly reminded them. And I remind you, we're here for the glory of God. But whatever your need is, hymn number 544, if you'll stand for the hymn of invitation. If you have a need tonight, you just need me to pray with you about anything, just wave me down. Joel will turn my mic off. It won't be public. And I'd be happy to pray with you. That way, if you don't have to come down here, but please let me know. I will come to you. Mm -hmm.